Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Today we're looking at the word repent. What does the word repent mean to the average person on the street in North America? Culture has a way of affecting language, which means that over time the meaning of words change because of the way they're used. So what does the word repent mean to most people when they hear it? Well, let me start by just naming a few places where the average person may have encountered this word. I I think that the majority of people who hear this word think, oh, that's a religious word. They may have encountered it in a grocery store parking lot or on a street corner. It's coming from a guy with a megaphone and a sign or a shirt telling people to repent. And for some reason, it seems like it's always a guy. They may have experienced it in a religious service that was focused on conversion. They may have experienced it in a religious context that was focused on people saying sorry for taking part in a taboo list of sins, drinking, drugs, swearing, smoking, sexual sin, etc. What ideas and emotions come to mind for the average person on the street in North America when they hear this word, repent? Uh, For some, they may not know quite what repentance means. If you say, like, what does that mean? They don't know, except that they are pretty sure that they don't want to do it. Because it's what you do after you lose an argument with the megaphone guy in the parking lot. (laughs) Some people hear this word repent, and it's an apocalyptic message of doom and gloom. Because the sign says, repent, the end is near. Or repent, or you'll go to hell. And the emotion that they feel is fear. It definitely sounds like a scary message. It's like, you better get your ducks in a row and you better shape up now. Other people hear a shame-based message. Repent to them sounds like you're bad. And for a lot of people, once you say you're bad, they're not really ready to hear anything else you have to say. They're just trying to get somewhere where they feel safe again. Another possible understanding of repentance is crossing over from the dark side. It's a conversion moment when someone prays the prayer. It's the person who used to do all those really bad taboo things, drinking, smoking, drugs, swearing, watching R-rated movies, having lots of sex outside of marriage, etc. But then they repented and they prayed the prayer and crossed over from the dark side and stopped doing all of those taboo sins. And so... For some people, that word repent or repentance becomes more of a memory. It's a conversion memory. It's when they crossed over. 
So these might be some of the ways that average people in North America understand this word, repent. So in our worship gathering, I asked this question. So I'd invite you to reflect on it. If you're listening with someone, chat with them. When you hear the word repent, what image, what memory or emotion comes to mind for you? So take a moment with that. Right. The Gospels say multiple times that everywhere Jesus went, he was telling people to repent. For instance, Matthew 4:17, from that time on Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has come near. Or in the Gospel of Mark, it is for the kingdom of God has come near. The book of Acts tells us what happened with Jesus' followers in the decades after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus' followers also kept telling people to repent. They used this same word. So, which cultural message was Jesus trying to send to people when he was saying this? Was he telling them, uh, you just lost an argument with the parking lot guy? Was it a message of doom and gloom? Was he trying to send a message of you're bad? Was he trying to tell people to pray the prayer? Was he trying to share an anti-taboo sin list? Or was it something else? So the Greek word repent, metanoeo, is a compound verb, which means it is a combination of two different Greek words meta and noeo and meta meaning with after or among noeo to think to perceive to understand to apprehend so this word repent is to think again it is to think with someone again to think along with someone's think among people and it's important to note that when Jesus invited people to think again, he was not threatening an ending. He was not saying the end is near. He was inviting people to become aware that a new beginning was happening. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. That's a new beginning. It's not an end. Rethink. Think again. God is near. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment to consider the types of people that Jesus was telling that they needed to rethink, repent. They were Bible experts, religious leaders of his day. They were nationalists and militarists of his day. Jesus said repent to women living in the midst of patriarchy, held back from learning, to wealthy landowners, the top 2%, the elites who were gobbling up poor peasants' farms, poor people who had nothing, those whose farms had been taken by the wealthy, corrupt elites. He 
He said this word repent to blue collar workers of his day, to government employees of his day, to anti-government revolutionaries, to married people of his day, to divorced people of his day, to hermaphrodites and the eunuchs of his day, to the social rejects of his day, to the prostitutes, the women who were labeled sinners but often had no alternative way of surviving. Jesus said repent to the foreigners of his day, to the racial supremacists of his day, those who thought Jewish people were better than Samaritans or Romans or people from Decapolis or Tyre or Sidon or wherever else. Jesus' message to all these different people was repent. The kingdom of God is near. Now, what did Jesus want them to rethink? If he's telling them, think again, then what did Jesus want them to rethink? It's easy to focus in on the what of that question, but perhaps by focusing on what and asking what are they supposed to rethink, perhaps we're missing a more basic point, something much more primal about our humanity that Jesus was addressing. The book of Genesis begins with the primal story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and in the middle of the garden stands the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God has said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, the crafty servant says to Eve, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very first temptation that humanity wrestled with was that desire to know. Humanity has always wanted to know good and evil. We don't like not knowing the answers. We don't like ambiguity. We don't like complexity and nuance, shades of gray, exceptions to the rule. We don't like not knowing who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. We don't like it when the results aren't clear-cut, black and white. None of that feels good. We want to know good and evil, right and wrong. It's just the way our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to look for shortcuts. They're constantly looking for patterns. In every single situation we face, there's too much information for our brains to analyze everything all at once. And so our brains look for shortcuts. They look for ways to reduce complexity, to skip steps, so that we can focus on what seems to be most important. And so our brains learn how to see what we expect to see and how to see even what we want to see. We like certainty. We like simplicity, good and evil, black and white, right and wrong. We like knowing the answers, because once we know the answers, our brains can stop spinning on the questions. Anytime we encounter that question, our brain can simply plug and play the answer, because we already know it. And because we like knowing the answers, it feels good to reduce a complex spectrum of possibilities, say 17, 18, 20 different possibilities, down to two different categories, two different choices. 
black or white. That feels a lot easier, a lot better than 17 different choices. We like always and never and either and or. And our brains don't only want to reduce ideas. Our brains also want to reduce people because we like knowing who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And so this is why when you put someone in a functional MRI machine and then you start showing them pictures of other humans for barely a 20th of a second, which is like barely detectable, this is why researchers, neuroscientists have found that the part of the brain wired for fear and anxiety and aggression processes that image that was seen for a 20th of a second, you process that person you see as an us or a them, good or evil. We want to know. We're driven to eat that ancient fruit. And so the fear center of our brain, the disgust center, anxiety, aggression center, spits out an answer, good or evil. And long before your brain has had a chance to turn on its processing center and begun to reason, before you really know anything about them, you already feel emotions about that person. And the answer has already been given. Knowledge of good and evil. The reasoning center of your brain is trying to catch up with your emotions, which often means... Our brains work to supply reasons to try to justify how we feel about people. And our reasons don't always make much sense. They don't always hold much water. Sometimes all we can say is, I just have a bad feeling about them, or I just have a bad feeling about this idea, or it's my intuition or my gut. And this primal desire to know good and evil is where all of our stereotypes and assumptions and biases come from. Our brains can become addicted to feeling right more than being right. We just can't stop eating that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So can you see how this primal desire to know good and evil, to have certainty, feels good on so many levels, we like the taste of that fruit. It calms our anxiety about what to do and how to handle situations. It calms our anxiety about how to understand our life experiences. It calms our anxiety when we can separate people into good guys and bad guys. We don't have to feel bad about treating people differently because our brains have already figured out the shortcut. They're bad guys. It's okay to treat them different. It boosts our ego when we feel like we're right. Like, who doesn't like feeling like they are right? Our so-called knowledge of good and evil gets all wrapped up in our identity, so much so that the invitation to rethink begins to feel very threatening to our identity. We become so attached emotionally to our way of seeing the world that we refuse to acknowledge that there are people out there who experience the world very differently than we do. So, let me bring this to a more personal level, just so you can kind of connect a little more. Every day, 
I get tempted to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And some days I eat it. And here's what happens to me when that fruit juice is dripping down my chin. I become certain that I know right and wrong. That I know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And that I have the answers. I'm not as fun to be around for my family. I'm not curious about where people are coming from and their perspective. I'm far less patient. I'm a bad listener. I'm more demanding, more condemning, more reactive, more punitive, more judgmental. I say mean things about people, even though I don't know what's going on with them exactly. And if someone tries to point out an inconsistency with me or something I'm getting wrong, if that fruit juice is dripping down my chin, watch out. When my heart is metabolizing the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the last thing I'm ready to do is consider the fact that I might be getting something wrong. I'm not about to rethink because I already know. Well, what does this have to do with faith and doubt? At the beginning of our Faith and Doubt series, I asked you all, what are some of the things that have rocked your faith the most and caused you to feel jaded, uncertain, skeptical, or done? And one of the common themes within your answers, the answers that were shared, had to do with not just what people know, but the way they relate to that knowledge. Ideas turn into ideologies, theories and possibilities turn into certainty. The way that humans relate to knowledge can result in humans feeling like God is far, far away. So let me show you some examples of this in the answers. What are some of the things that have rocked your faith the most? Frustration with questions being seen as the enemy rather than ways to grow and be better. Being treated as the problem when you find yourself struggling with your faith. When I get told or learn that science and faith don't always go hand in hand, and sometimes it's difficult to know which one is correct or which one to believe in. Balancing intellect with intuition. Accepting the ambivalence of everyday life versus the absolute of God's creation. Belligerent, politically polarized Christians who are blind to ethics and reality in political, scientific, and medical controversy over the last few years. Having my opinion ignored or discounted. The length to which Christians will go to exclude, hate, judge, and not even listen in any way to what someone of opposing opinion thinks. When Christians won't allow the spirit to be the life-changing force in someone else's life, and instead they force others to believe or live the same as them. It's difficult to see folks who say they believe, believe different things. Reconciling hell's reality, what that is, and non-believing family, my own doubts. The church filling in blanks when issues are not directly addressed in the Bible. So can you see how these examples, when People are certain that they know something, and when ideas become ideology, can you see how they result in folks also feeling far away from God? Like, can you see how so many 
of these are affected by the way people hold knowledge of good and evil with certainty. We are all driven to know, and the irony is that we will always know far less than what we do know. And even that knowledge will fade. The Apostle Paul wrote, as for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part. We don't know what we don't know. David Foster Wallace tells the following short parable. He says, there are these two young fish and they're swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. Who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the heck is water? Well, we are all the young fish. There are things about your social location in this life that have been such a constant, you simply have never known anything else. You can't see those things. You don't notice them. You take them for granted. You never really stop to imagine anything different. And even if you tried, you probably couldn't imagine it very well. You can't see the water you're swimming in. So, back to Jesus. Back to repenting. When Jesus traveled around his corner of the world telling all kinds of different people, to repent, to rethink, the kingdom of God is near. Was he just trying to make everyone flip-flop on their views? Was he trying to turn all those revolutionaries into government agents and government agents into revolutionaries? Was he trying to turn the wealthy elites into poor people and vice versa and all the conservatives into liberals and liberals into conservatives and on and on? Is that why he wanted people to think again? Or was he addressing a much deeper illness? Was he working towards mending what happened to humanity back in the garden, eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Was he working towards reorienting our relationship to knowledge, the way we hold knowledge? Let's pause for a moment here. In order to rethink... What possibilities do you have to open yourself up to? If you are going to rethink, you have to be willing to say, I might be wrong. You have to be willing to say, I don't know everything. There might be something that I'm missing. I might need to learn something new. There might be new information that I haven't considered. I might need to update my ideas. There might be something my opponents are getting right. There might be something I need to unlearn. Sometimes learning happens by way of subtraction, not addition. It's possible I'll never know the answer to this question. I might need to talk to some people who are swimming in completely different water and ask them to tell me what I'm unable to see or understand about my water. I might be the one who needs to change my mind. I might need to examine my assumptions, my stereotypes, my mental shortcuts. 
Am I being honest about my feelings? Or is my brain supplying reasons to justify how I feel? Am I seeing what I expect to see or what I want to see? Am I open to admitting what I might be getting wrong? Another way Jesus says this is, first remove the plank from your own eye. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Was Jesus looking at all the log jams in his world, in this world, a grossly distorted relationship with knowledge, and trying to point vastly different people towards a way forward together. Rethink. The kingdom of God is near. A new beginning is near. Look for God as you open yourself to these questions. See what God reveals to you. It's worth relaying the story as told by Adam Grant of the Wright brothers who invented the airplane. So, as the story goes, when Orville and Wilbur Wright were in the process of designing their first airplane, they argued so much with one another that their sister Catherine threatened to move out of the house. They were stuck at the point of figuring out how to design a propeller. Their shouting matches with one another were long and loud. They would go on for hours at a time. Each brother was certain that the other one was wrong, and they would carry on telling the other one why the other one was wrong and why they were right. But on the morning that they finally discovered how to make a plane that would actually fly, a propeller system that would work, they did something different. When Orville showed up at the shop that morning, he said to their mechanic, I have been wrong. And instead of arguing, he thought that they should design the propeller the way his brother Wilbur wanted to do it. Well, then his brother Wilbur showed up. And Wilbur started arguing against the idea that he had previously been trying to shove down Orville's throat, thought that Orville was probably right. And then they realized that they were actually both wrong. They figured out that their airplane didn't need just one propeller, but two propellers. They needed to spin those propellers in opposite directions in order to fly. And the reason that they came to that complex solution was because they both opened themselves to rethink. I might be wrong. My opponent might be getting something right. Now, how many of our struggles in our personal relationships, our work relationships, church relationships, camp relationships, school relationships, global relationships, how many of those struggles exist because people on both sides, on every side of the argument, are getting something wrong? And they're unwilling to open themselves up and say, I might be getting something wrong. I might be getting something in a way that's not quite right. And my opponent, they might be getting something right that I have off. And I might need to rethink and update my views and learn something new. 
And how often is the solution found in the combination of the answers that are moving often the answers seem like they're moving in opposite directions kind of like those propellers and yet somehow when put in combination they lift relationships and marriages and projects and organizations off the ground what if jesus didn't mean for repentance to become just one moment in your life kind of like a conversion memory something you did way back when what if jesus meant for repentance to become a new way of living an attitude an orientation a way of relating to all knowledge what if repent for the kingdom of god is near is jesus way of trying to keep the juice of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from getting into your heart dripping down your chin, ruining your life, making you and everyone around you feel far from God. Repent, rethink. The kingdom of God is near. How might God come to you as you rethink? How might God bring crippled and stalled out projects off the ground as people rethink together? How might God open up new space in relationships that were previously filled with arguing, shouting, accusations, and stalemates? How might God heal what was broken? How might the kingdom of God come near? So a final discussion question that we chatted with one another about, I invite you to reflect or chat with whoever you're listening with. What stands out? as one of the most challenging aspects of living with an attitude of repentance for you? And what do you see as one of the most hope-filled aspects of living with an attitude of repentance? Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.